This week I'm joined by Elliot Neiman, who is Professor of History at the University of San Francisco. He is the author of A Dubious Past, Ernst Jünger and the Politics of Literature After Nazism, and most recently, Free Radicals, Agitators, Hippies, Urban Guerrillas and Germany's Youth Revolt of the 1960s and 1970s. He also wrote the foreword to Ernst Jünger's World War II journals, A German Officer in Occupied France, 1941-1945. to this episode, we discuss the life of Ernst Jünger. If you wish to support Hermetics Podcast, please find the Patreon, merchandise, and donation links in the description below. Enjoy. Elliot Neiman, uh, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So, on this podcast, we, we start with the Hermetics question, which is, uh, you can place three thinkers in a room, living or dead, and listen in on the conversation. Uh, which three do you pick? Yeah, I thought about it because um, you sent me the the question. Um, so I've lately actually become interested in economic history. So I'm going to tell you who my second choice is. I would love to have Hayek, Friedrich Hayek, and Marx, and then Paul Krugman in the same room, <laughs> just because of the economics of you know globalism and what's going on. But my I'm going to go high uh, Nietzsche, uh, obvious choice. Nietzsche because we really don't know, you know, he was such a loner. We really don't know what he uh, sounded like. He early on as a teacher um, quit because of for health reasons and he just sort of traveled and talked to himself up in the Alps. So I'd love to have Nietzsche, Aristotle, because Aristotle did for the ancient world what Nietzsche, I think, did for the modern world, change everything. And then throw in somebody later, Rorty, Richard Rorty, who is not in their league. But he was very good, I think, at playing off the ideas of various philosophers. So that's that. I could give you some more obscure names. Um, but if I really, you know, if I only had one choice, that would be it. Nietzsche, Aristotle, Richard Rorty. Okay. Who would your obscure list be? Or the, how, how yeah, obscure? so we were talking just before we got on about Cioran, so the pessimist. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Schopenhauer, Cioran. I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce it. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Emil Cioran, the, the Romanian philosopher, very bleak. He had terrible insomnia. and So maybe Schopenhauer, Cioran, and then somebody like, I don't know, Reinhold Niebuhr or... Somebody also who kind of kind of Neil Augustinian put people together who just have really bleak philosophy, <laughs> or maybe McKibben because of the environmental catastrophe that is is it looks like is upon us. Bill McKibben, uh, and sort of connect up continental pessimism, which which you know is obviously pre the catastrophe re, you know reading that we have now with somebody who's actually predicting a real catastrophe. How's that? That's um, a great three rooms there. It's going to be interesting to hear to hear a pessimist, pessimists such as Kioran, to kind of right. comment on the climate change as opposed to, uh, I guess, his comments are usually just general kind of cosmic terror as opposed right. to a, as opposed to a definite terror such exactly. as climate change. That would exactly, be... something specific. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other one, of course, Nietzsche. Nietzsche is uh, is one of my picks, and I think we've had him twice now from other guests and it seems he is someone that you just you read and you think i would absolutely love love to meet this man yeah Retain, speak, mm, you know? retains the mystery at all all turns really even reading biographies it's still extremely difficult to kind of get a hold on him 
Right, right. You know, the, the, the few reports we have of him, you know, later when he was just in Switzerland wandering around, you know, going to see Wagner and Lucerne and all that, was he was an amazingly shy man. And, you know, just the con- contra... Yeah, not contradiction, but the 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 the, the contrast between this guy who's <laughs> advocating for the Superman and the super shy professor, you know, <laughs> uh, is kind of interesting, right? Yeah. And then the whole story. Oh yeah, Lou Andrea Salome. How about that? We get Nietzsche, Lou Andrea Salome, and Ray, right, his friend, in the same room. That's <laughs> the whole story with the whip. When you go to woman, don't forget the whip, right? Oh, that cool. That was the uh, the trio that kind of fell apart very slowly i believe right right they kind of lived together and was all this jealousy can you imagine being in the middle of that that would have been <laughs> <laughs> um so we're going to be speaking uh well discussing the work uh, uh philosophical views and life of ernst Jünger. yeah um primary piece of research here is obviously Jünger's works but also your own book um, A Dubious Past Ernst Jünger and the Politics of Literature After Nazism so I was wondering if you could give us um, kind of a brief overview of your background and and how you came across Jünger's work and and why it interests you so much that you actually have written one of the few uh, English biographies which are available yeah yeah so well, it, it, it was really because I needed a, a dissertation topic. <laughs> uh, things t- turn, you know, sort of, in, sort of are, are often that way. They're kind of uh, arbitrary. So um, I did my, uh, I, I did my, my, uh, my PhD under Martin Jay at, at Berkeley. And so I came, so I'm, I'm Canadian, uh, and I went to Zurich, and then I was, at, I was at the University of Zurich for two years, then I was in Berlin for three, and then I went to Berkeley in 85 and started uh, studying under Martin Jay, who's well known for his work on the Frankfurt School, and is, is really, I think, the leading intellectual historian. He's now retired, but still, but still pretty active. And then I went back in 88 to Berlin and needed a a topic. Uh, You know, I didn't know what I was going to write about. And what I wanted to do was do an intellectual who uh, survived the war and and what happened to them. Actually, I wanted to do a whole group. My original was going to do like 10 or 12 thinkers. And so some of them were going to be from the left, some of them were going to be from the right. And then, I, I, you know, as, as, as usual, you know, you narrow things down. And the last guy standing was, was Jünger. And at the time, I mean, you say he's obscure now. He, he's not nearly as obscure as he was then. I mean, when I told people I was going to do Ernst Jünger, they said, really? Is, is he still alive? Uh, I go, yeah, he's still alive. And, you know, Germans, and I'm talking about people who in the know, intellectuals, and they didn't mm-hmm. even know uh, what was up with him. He'd been kind of forgotten. And then he made this comeback in the 90s as he uh, approached 100. So so this is late 80s, 90s. And uh, I just got fascinated by the story, the whole fact that he was getting so old and he had been in both wars. And I, I, I was attracted and kind of mystified by his writing. It's, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of obscure a lot of it, and but it's challenging, and I, and I like that. So, make a long story short, I got back to to uh, Berkeley, and I told Marty, and he said that's that's a great idea. There's really, like you say, very little on this, particularly in the Anglophone world, and so. Um, so I went down that path, and I can tell you more. But that's how the, that's how I got into the topic. 
Mm-hmm. Had you come across his work prior to that, or was was it simply on, on this kind of a PhD? Uh, well, it's interesting. I remember now that before, when I was first in Berlin, 80, so I was Berlin 82 to 85, I bought a little paperback copy of On the Marmor, uh, On the Marble Cliffs, Auf den Marmorklippen. And there was this picture of Jünger at the back in a kind of dandy-esque uh, black suit. And I was fascinated by it. And I, I read part of it. I don't think I even got to the end of it. And so he was known to me, but no. And then and then it really became when I started looking about you know at this topic of what happened. It was sort of denazification, really, was the, the umbrella issue there, right? What happened to these guys? Uh, but I, yeah, I had. I'm looking back now. I was, I, I was, I was intrigued when I first saw him was his little book, which turned out to be, you know, his resistance novel to the Nazis, uh, written in '39. And I think perhaps the the clear, the best place to kind of start, and almost the place that people are going to be almost jumping at to ask this question, because of course, um, I'm sure we'll put in bits of Junger's Junger's biography here and there here, but. Uh, what's known, what's clearly known of him is that he was in both wars and Storm of Steel, which is arguably his most famous novel, was written about his experiences in the Somme. But I imagine what a lot of people are going to be asking is is about the fact that he was was part of Nazism and did act within, uh, you know, within the role as, as, a, as a Nazi, uh, I believe, it's, uh, officer. Um, what do you make of this? You know, not to sound to jump the gun here and sound too kind of uh, reactionary to it, but, you know, was was Jünger a, a Nazi in this sense? Right, right. Well, that is a big question. So um, if people are interested, I'm going to I'm gonna do a little bit of self-marketing here. I just wrote the foreword, Jünger's Second World War Diaries, part of them, most of them, were just published by Columbia uh, University Press. It's called A German Officer in Paris, and I wrote the foreword. And so if people are really interested in this question, in the foreword I deal uh, exactly with this. So um, long story short, he had a nationalist phase in the 1920s when he came back from the war. He was a leader because of the Storms of Steel. He was a natural leader of these new nationalists, so these young guys who are veterans, they're, you know, they're really angry about the defeat and they're trying to figure out what the, um, the next move should be politically. And they don't like the Republic. Uh, uh, so he's clearly on the right. He's clearly in the anti Weimar, uh, side of this. Uh, and he writes some pretty nasty stuff, including, you know, against Jews. He wrote in the, in the, in the Nazi newspaper, focus of Beobachter and all that, but he was never interested in the racial part of it, he, his sort of idea for he was a fascist. There's no doubt about it. But his fascist ideas were were not about a folk community. They weren't about race. It was more cosmic. It was liberalism is dead, and now we're moving into this new heroic phase where the workers and the and the soldiers are going to take over. It was uh, he was close to a national Bolshevik, a guy called um, uh, Nikish. Uh, and so he's all over the map. He's friends with anarchists like Eric Musum. He's friends with communists. He was friends with Brecht. But he was also inside this right-wing milieu. And then he starts to distance himself from it already, I would say, by 25 or 26. He, go, he leaves uh, Germany. He goes to study zoology. 
Junger is a famous uh, entomologist, an amateur entomologist. He studied beetles, and there's there's seven beetles actually named after him. He's really interested in plants and animals and zoology in general, and um, and and he, and he and he starts writing travel di- diaries, and 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 then he has a surrealist phase, uh, the the adventurous heart, which has also been uh, translated with in Telos Press. I also wrote the foreword to that with a guy named Elias Burris. So he moves away. When the Nazis come to power, he's clearly on the out. But Junger, uh, uh, Hitler really admired him, wanted to meet him. Junger never met him. And Goebbels kept trying to get him into the party. He publishes a book in 1932. Tell me if I'm giving too much detail. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> um, publishes a, be- a book in 1932, same year as Adolf Huxley's Brave New World, which is a, a sort of vision of this fascistic future um, which is kind of scary and in some ways more radical than what the Nazis were up to, but no racial stuff, okay? And then he writes this novel that uh, we were just talking about, On the Marble Cliffs in 1939, which is about two brothers. Younger had a brother who he was very close to, and they're on an island, and there's a, a Goering-type character called the, 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 the head forester who takes over the island and it's kind of a catastrophic apocalyptic ending to it. And many people read this as, a, as his uh, commentary on the Nazis. He found the Nazis to be too much fed by the mob. They were proletariat. I mean, Junger, even though he's middle class, he had a very aristocratic sense. He loved French aristocracy, he had a huge love of French history, and he loved Saint-Simon, who was the biographer at the court of Louis XIV. There's just so many different angles to this guy. But to answer your question, he, he was clearly not an, uh, a Nazi. He was, he was part of the Wehrmacht in World War II, and he was, he was associated both with the Stauffenberg plot to kill Hitler and the plot by Rommel in '44 to arrest Hitler, and, and neither, of course, which worked out. And I described the whole crazy thing in, in, in the foreword. He, uh, he, Jean Cocteau said, and I'll, and I'll finish here so I don't go on too long. Jean Cocteau, the, the French uh, artist, uh, famously, who, and he knew all the artists. He knew Picasso in Paris. Well, famously said, some people had dirty hands. Some people had clean hands. Sorry, some people, yeah, some people had dirty hands. Some people had clean hands. Junger had no hands. Meaning he always kind of escaped from the situation and uh, and was able to to hide his tracks. Uh, it's not really completely fair. He did help Jews uh, in Paris. He also protected uh, people, soldiers. He was a censor, so he censored their mail. He would protect soldiers who wrote things that could have got them in trouble and warn Jews of when the deportations were coming up. But he always did it in the most careful manner possible. Uh, after the war, he was blacklisted. He had to he had to wiggle out of that and ask me more questions. And I'll tell you as much as you want. There's so much to tell. <laughs> so you mentioned that he kind of always escapes and gets away, or, or, or right. avoids avoids being pulled into these things. And one of the things that you write in a dubious past about his young life is that he was part of multiple. Uh, after after the war, he's part of multiple parties, um, as you just stated, anarchism, communism, etc., and never really was in any of them long enough to ever really be aligned with them. And I wonder, do you think that um, he was articulate and intelligent enough to, you know, articulate his position and as an iconoclast, an individualist, or was it almost like, not to sound too crass, but a fluke that he ended continually avoided these things? Good question. Um, 
So politically, you know, he said, um, I've made my peace with the Federal Republic. I'm not a big fan of it. Um, he clearly was not, he, he clearly was not enthusiastic about the, the new democracy that Germany built, but he came more and more to um, accept it. And even, I think, appreciated he was at the end of his life. Uh, given all kinds of awards, I mean, he went with Cole Helmut Cole, the Chancellor, to Normandy on you know one of these. I think it was eighty four, so forty years after the landing, he was feted by the president. So he he got a lot of recognition at the end. Um, but he he considered himself an anarch, so not an anarchist, but an anarch. A n a r c h in German, and it's a, it's a, and he you you can read you can read about this in in various uh, of his novels like Ormusville and 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 in other places. But the idea basically is that you hide out in plain sight as a uh, dissident, uh, and the anarch is not an so an anarchist throws bomb and uh, bombs or makes trouble or whatever. An anarch is somebody who does it quietly and and behind the scenes. So that was kind of his 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 um, his way of resisting the politics of the day, resisting technology, resisting the modernity. He never drove a car. Uh, he lived in a little tiny village after forty eight for the rest of his life until he died in nineteen ninety eight in this tiny village, where you know he was sort of like Heidegger. You know, you think of. Some of these intellectuals like Sartre in the city with the cafes and blah, blah. And, and, and Heidegger and Junger, who were friends, you know, lived out in the countryside and talked to the peasants. And so, so that's, that's kind of, a, that's kind of what, what he was up to in that regard. And you mentioned it, and this is a really big, big overarching comment from him, from I think from day one, this relation to modernity, technology, and almost aristocracy, because um, I think it's in the documentary, one of the, the only documentary where they go and meet Junger, that they say it's it's like meeting a consciousness formed before, uh, but formed in the 19th century, you know, he's a man completely out of time. Um, right. And you, you mentioned in uh, Dubious Past that, uh, as you previously mentioned here, that he was definitely a fascist, but his fascism wasn't blood and soil fascism. It right. was it was this. Um, you describe it as anarcho-martial fascism, a kind of authoritarianism where the worker is taken down simply to predictability, efficiency, and discipline. And yet, this is in complete contrast to the man himself and his views, which were um, extremely kind of almost. Not views, but his his loves and his passions were extremely kind of delicate and almost romantic. And there's a huge contrast there. I don't know what you what you'd make of that. Right, right. You know, the worker is a completely uh, mystifying book. Uh, I think it's terribly written, by the way. It's not it's not fun to read. It's um, it's obscure. I think that he was trying to. He loved. You know, he only read uh, novels and works from the 19th century. Uh, almost exclusively, except Huxley. He was really admiring of Huxley, and I think he wanted to give a, his version of what was happening in the world. He saw himself <clears throat> as a seismograph. He actually uses that uh, that term. You know, I'm, I'm, it's not me. It's not my opinion. I'm the seismograph. Don't blame me. I'm just telling you when the earthquakes are coming. And so he thought he was describing the way the world was going. That's 1932. I think that by the time you get to the post-war world, he's had his shift. You know, Junger, uh, sorry, Heidegger had this famous turn, right? Where he turns away from being in time, 
which is uh, about resoluteness and, and, and activity and, and, you know, moving with the fate of the people and all that, which got him, of course, deep into Nazism, Heidegger now. Junger also had a turn. He goes from what he calls his Old Testament to his New Testament. So his Old Testament was nationalism. The New Testament is a kind of Christian humanism at first. Then he does all kinds of weird things. He was friends with Albert Hoffman, who invented LSD. He trips out in the 70s um, doing, you know, he wrote a whole book about uh, ecstasy and, 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 and drugs. And, and, and so to answer your question, I think that book, and it, it, it's a contradiction only if you don't look at the whole life. I think, he, I think that was the way he saw the world in 32, and I don't think he saw it that way later. And his anti-technology perspective, I mean, it would be easy to say that it emanates from his experiences in the war of seeing, um, right. was it, uh, Total urbanization. I can't remember the. Yeah, total. Exactly, the total mobilization. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. Total mobilization. So his anti-tech pers- perspective kind of, I think, clearly emanates from there. But um, how is it different from kind of contemporary anti-technology writers? Because there, there is always a strange undercurrent in his, in his anti-technology kind of. Not they're not they don't come across as rants or it's almost like there's a a loss. There, you know, he was extremely fond of nature. Um, right. So yeah, what do you, what did you make of what do you make of his um, his anti yeah, stance? Yeah, right. So again, again, it's the seismograph thing. It's it, you, he can live without driving a car in his little village and still think about what technology is doing in the world the same way Heidegger did. Right, Heidegger wrote a famous essay on technology. What is it from fifties? Right, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really didn't know much about technology. But um, uh, same with Junger. I think that he uh, he was looking, he, he he was trying to figure it out. He was trying to analyze it, right? The place to go is Oymesville, this novel from the, his early 90s, where he predicts the iPhone. <laughs> He's got this thing called the Funnel 4. And it's basically an iPhone, right? Where these it's sort of back in time in... In, it's sort of like the period after Alexander the Great, the Hellenistic world. It's not clear where exactly this thing's taking place, but um, they have a they have an internet. They have a computer system with uh, so it's it's like the Hellenistic times, but it's projected into the future. And and there's computers with databases, and everybody has these little phones that they can communicate with each other. So he's trying to sort of. It, I think you can connect it up by saying. If you're skeptical about modernity and about technology, you want to sort of write about it in a way that makes people aware of what you think are the problems are. That's the way I would put it. And within this uh, anti-technology stance, is, is, is there, there's a, um, a larger theme which comes across in your, all of Jung's work in an extremely subtle sense. It's not. It's sort of. So, so the theme itself is is horror. There's always. Horror in in his works, right. but and um, it doesn't come come across in a kind of Lovecraftian sense of of a cosmic horror. N- neither is it a kind of gory terror. Uh, right. It's this underlying thing. It seems where kind of nature nature is there in the background, and it's something that humans are almost fighting against in this new kind of militarization and techno. You know, the, this new uh, wave of technology and 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 uh, yeah. Do you think that Junger was a was a Perhaps this is quite a lot like the previous question as well. But do you think he was attached to um, uh, kind of a realism, a sentimentality for the past, or 
did he like you like you've said with the seismograph comment he just understood that there was no real stopping this this newfound thing that's a good question i think he was pretty pessimistic about the future he early on he would you know he the the greens in germany read younger sometimes just the way they kind of read heidegger even though you know anybody who knows knows that they're from the right wing but um there is a current in in a in the ecology movement, particularly in Germany, which has a right wing side to it, right? It's sort of deep earth, you know, love of trees, and you know the, the, the it's easy to it's easy to be an ecologist and a green and and actually be anti technology. Obviously, even though most people who vote for that party and consider themselves greens consider themselves on the left, it's real easy to be a right wing ecologist. So. I think that that's the way Junger was. I think that he thought of technology just like Heidegger as of the wrong path that we've gone down. You know, we've framed things as using a Heideggerian term. We've framed things as stuff, as resources instead of appreciating nature. And so, so that's what, uh, that's what he thought about that. And I forgot, what was the second part of your question? Uh, the, 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 the underlying sense of horror in his work. Oh, horror. Right, right, right. So that's fascinating. So uh, uh, a guy named Bohrer, B-O-H-R-E-R, Karl Heinz Bohrer, wrote a book uh, called The Aesthetic of Horror. Aesthetic des Schrecken, so aesthetic of, of shock. And in which he analyzes all this. And it's early on, it's in that surrealist book that I talked about from the 20s, and then he revised it in the 30s, uh, called The Adventurous Heart, where he examines, um, it's it's got all kinds of macabre things, like he goes into a shop and he thinks that it's, it's fruit hanging, but it turns out to be human flesh, right? And there's sort of dream world, it's a collage, it's sort of like Dolly and the Surrealists and all this weird stuff that are put together. And I, I think that um, with with Junger, it's, it's because he examined the human world the way he examined the insect world, right? That's the way I think about it, that you, you, you have this distance from it and you see human beings as just like, imagine us instead of being ants, you know, instead of looking at ants, you imagine all these human beings who are building their nests and they're doing all their things and they're creating all these little empires and he's trying to figure out what they're doing and what what he sees underneath it all is the ghastly the ghostly the uh the black the you know the the, the weird side of uh, of what we do rather than the i guess you would say the humanitarian or the you know, the liberal, right? It's, it's all anti-liberal, right? Liberals believe in progress and we're all getting more freedom and going some, you know, some kind of Whig direction in history. And he sees it as the opposite, right? There's a lot of Schopenhauer, there's a lot of Nietzsche in Jungmann. Mm-hmm. And this, this, this underlying weirdness, of course, comes through, uh, especially in Storm of Steel. And this is one of the more controversial stances of, of Jung. And, and one of his extremely well known for which is um war as a transcendental experience as a as yeah. a as this event which is returning us kind of returns us to our nature in a way yeah. um and what what do you think why do you think it was that Jung extrapolated this idea so often and so thoroughly because it comes up multiple times and it's it was clearly extremely important for him that he found some truth in this experience i think 
That's a great point. So uh, the whole, yeah, definitely, it's 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 in Storms of Steel, and then it's in these essays. War is an inner experience, right? He wrote a few years after the war ended. I think that's right. I think he saw um, the elementary, or the elementary, uh, what makes us human is not what the liberal bourgeois individualistic world thinks. What makes us human is that we are uh, essentially a, a, a kind of conscious animals and and because we're we're not you know animals fight because out of survival right or they need food or whatever human beings are conscious animals so we fight for the sake of our sense of self right Mm -hmm. and that just fits into again to this whole schopenhauerian view of the the um the the will Right, the, the 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 subconscious that pushes us forward, and he he wants to explore that that side of us. And I think that's why he was always fascinated with war, confrontation. Also, drugs fits into there because you can go you go into the subworlds, right? You can go beyond underneath consciousness and and figure that all out. That's what he wants to explore. And of course, this 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 exploration into this almost dark heart of humanity, which is during his his lifetime kind of being steamrolled out of existence by as you said liberalism and progress uh, as he sees it and uh, this of course ties in with i think what is for him the the theme or the idea that he's always striving towards which is an idea of of personal freedom uh, and this this seems to be extremely important to him and it and i think it's in your book you mentioned that freedom freedom for younger is 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 you don't state this explicitly, but this is this is what came across, which is freedom for Junger is is always internal. You know, he's he's around all these collectives, he's around all these political movements and acts such as war, which are entirely collective. And I think, I do you think from this, he that's how he came to his uh, his idea of um, the anarch and of the individualist and. And, and and of his idea of individualism in, in general. Yeah, yeah. I'd have to think about that some more. I think that's right. I think, you know, it's a good question. Does he really think that everybody can be an anarch or is it only the younger can be the anarch? <laughs> um, uh, I mean, he definitely puts it forward in the... Uh, in the Forest Walker, the Vodgang, that's an essay also from the 50s, fascinating, also been translated by, by Tilo's uh, magazine, and Russell Berman, I think, wrote the introduction, where he does sort of set it up as a program. So, you you know, anybody can join the club and be an anarch, and, and there's the old problem, right? They, why anarchists can't get organized? Because they won't accept anybody into the group, because they're all <laughs> anarchs, right? So, I'm not sure. I, I'm going to punt on this one. I don't know, I don't know how he conceived of that, whether whether it was just sort of his personality or whether he really thought that, you know, the, the smart way to be in the world is, is to be an anarch. I'm not sure. I have to think about that one. Okay. And what do you make of his um, his idea of freedom in, in general? Because his, his continual kind of... Uh, yeah, it's a little, it's a little solipsistic. I mean, you know, if, they, if, if we were all anarchs, it's sort of like asking about libertarianism, right? If we're all libertarians and... Where, how do you have a society, right? Uh, if we're all anarchs, I mean, it depends on so you. It, it, it presupposes that there is a society working a normal way that you get to exclude yourself. And, and Junger was constantly attacked for this of, of being kind of aristocratic snob, right, mm-hmm. or a dandy or whatever. 
for that reason. And I don't know how, again, I don't know how he thought about that, whether, whether he just thought, look, I don't care, you guys, this is the, this is the way I want to be. You be the way you want to be. But there is a, there is a problem there. It's, it's sort of like a kibbutz can only exist in Israel because there's a capitalist economy around it, right? You can be a socialist kibbutz, but you have to have a capitalist economy that you can deal with. If you're an anarch, you need normal society functioning that you can exclude yourself from. And there's a contradiction there, for sure. And what do you do you see as some of the moments, because obviously he, he went from a nationalist and then he was part of this, uh, this conservative revolution during the denazification process, after the war, and then and then sort of the the anarchic uh, individualist Ryan comes through. Do you think it was just a slow process of dissolution with collectives, or do you think there were some key moments there which made him kind of realise that no amount of, of collective action is going to work, at least for him? So let, let's just go first of all on what he said about that himself. So he the, the conservative revolution stuff basically stops by by you know the middle of the Second World War. He or, or earlier, actually, I would say I, I say he abandons that by by the mid thirties. Then the war comes. He he reads the Bible, the New Testament, from beginning to end twice during the war. It's all in the diaries there, and he becomes kind of a Christian humanist, right? And uh, and this is you know most people think just the. Uh, Hitler was distasteful to him, Nazis, and he, you know, he, he visited the Eastern Front. It's all in the Second World War diaries, and he's and he knows he knows about the Holocaust. He 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 finds out fairly early on uh, from people what's actually going on, and this 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 really disgusts him, and and so his his sort of emotional reaction is to go back to the Bible, right back to Christianity, and then. Um, and then I think he's uh, interested, and that kind of fades. <laughs> and by the 60s, he's interested in political questions. He writes a book about the world state. He, he almost moves in a kind of liberal direction, like let's, let's all have a, and let's make the UN work, right? Um, and then he abandons that. So he's trying out different things. Uh, you know, Heidegger never considered him a philosopher, and I think that's right. I don't think, uh, Junger was self-taught. Basically, right? He he went he went a couple of semesters in in the sciences, but he he never he never had had a formal education. He's self-taught, and what Heidegger likes about Junger is that is his ability to sort of get a sense of the times. Right? Again, the seismograph, and and so the answer to your question, I think, is there's not a fundamental set of building blocks to the way he looks at the world, the way there is with, with Heidegger. Uh, it, it, it moves with the times. And what makes him interesting is just that his observations are fascinating. He knows everybody and, uh, you know, writers, politicians, et cetera, et cetera. And as he gets older, it, it becomes very complex. He had an amazing memory. He had an amazing uh, knowledge of the natural world and of history, and so he, it all combines in the, you know, they gave him the Goethe Prize in 1985, and, uh, uh, you know, he's, he was considered by many to have the breadth of somebody like Goethe. So I probably didn't answer your question, but it's something like that, right? This meandering through the world, right? So the, you mentioned that there's, there was there was sort of a, he came back into fashion in the in the nineties after yeah. a long period of, you know, 
being as obscure in most countries as he always had been, really. And wh- where do you think this newfound enjoyment or uh, even, in some cases, reverence of his work came from? I think it happens already in 82 when Cole comes to power. So you have the end of the social, demo- the social Democrats are out of power, and there's the turn, right? You vend uh, which is interesting because Heidegger has a turn, Jünger has a turn, now German history has a turn, right, where the whole social democratic experiment gets sidetracked and the conservatives come to power. And and Cole famously says he has the grace of a late birth, right? He's born in 44, he's not part of the Nazis, there's a new start, and Germany moves to in a conservative direction, and they begin to look for normalcy. And I think they latched on to Junger, you know, not only Junger, but they latch on to Junger as a kind of representative of somebody who can stitch together all the different parts of German history and represent something greater than just this obsession with the 12 years of Nazism. And Junger had enough bona fides where he was considered to be, um, you know, part of the resistance or anti-Nazi. That becomes a huge controversy, by the way, this giving him the Goethe Prize. There were protests. There was, it was a big deal, right? I write about it in my book. Uh, and so, so it's part of that spirit of the 80s. And then by the 90s, he's moving towards his 100th birthday, right? And so it, it's just a, a, a kind of fascinating fact. There's, there's not that many uh, famous writers who, who, who get to that age. Fontenelle made it to 102 in the 17th century. I don't know if there's many more than that. And, and then... Some of his stuff became kind of cultish. So uh, the ecologists started reading some of it, as I said. The drug stuff interested um, people in sort of some of the subcultures in Germany. And people also, I think, recognize that there's something there. This guy isn't just a war writer. He wasn't just a fascist. These diaries are a record of, you know, decades and decades of, of history. And so all that came together. I think deservedly, he deserves to be paid attention to. You know, and do you think there's anything in his views which you see as a reason for you know something that people are latching onto now? Because obviously we've we we briefly mentioned before this with um, uh, never briefly mentioned this with with the climate change thing, and I think you know he has the book the uh, the forest the forest passage and this this destruction of nature. Do you think there's any of his ideas which people are latching on to now? Yeah, uh, I mean, for sure. I mean, the the, passage, the Forest Passage is a, a book about resistance. It's really kind of about uh, the Germans after World War II, I think, if you read between the lines. But you can make it into a more universal thing, which is about resisting power in some sense. And so... You know, if you're young and you you want to fight against the corporations, you know, you can be an anarch in that sense. I think for sure. I think that's right. I think that he gives you ammunition to uh, to 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 work it into whatever it is your political campaign is, whether right or uh, left. Uh, as to your question is, you know, is there is there stuff that's that's valuable? I just wouldn't see Junger totally in term of, terms of politics. That's the mistake that the left makes, particularly in Germany. They just like, oh, he's a fascist, he's a fascist. Yeah, fine. You know, mm-hmm. you have to contextualize and blah, blah. But he, it, it's, it, Junger is really not, at the end of the day, a political figure. You know, he, he's bigger than that. Um, he's, 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 he understands uh, a lot of things about um, the world, the universe, the cosmos, where we're going. You can agree or disagree, but it's always thought-provoking. 
right? And I, I think to pigeonhole him the way the Germans tend to do uh, uh, is wrong. And I think time is proving that. I mean, he's he's not obscure anymore, really. I mean, there there's a lot more. I'm I'm always amazed. That there's always a new younger book coming out. So, I think it, you know it's always the test of time, right? And he hasn't been uh, he hasn't been uh, disregarded quite quite the opposite. Do you think the Germans pigeonhole him because they still have that kind of obsession with the the twelve years of of their yep. history there? Yep, yep. And they like to, you know, you're either fascist or anti-fascist, right? They, the Germans are very quick. They, I think that they're still traumatized, basically, by the Nazi period. And so the left it wants to cleanse itself from anything at all that has to do with Nazism. And they see the right wing. So if the right wing or conservative, let's leave the right wing alone, just conservatives. Conservatives are writing about Junger and publishing about Junger, and they're not being critical enough. That's the way I get pigeonholed, by the way. I'm considered right wing by these people, because I don't make a dubious past means both sides. I, I don't. I, even then, which when I wrote that book, I was more on the left in Frankfurt School than I am today. But because I didn't, you know, say, this guy's evil, Right? I said mm-hmm. dubious. I said look at both sides. I already got pigeonholed as being part of the right. So this is this terrible polarization that happens. We're seeing it now in spades, you know, with Trump and with uh, Johnson and England and all the rest of it. But that was always there for the Germans, right? You're either you're either completely anti-Nazi or you're a freedom-loving, good, moral person. Right? Mm-hmm. Of course, the irony there is that if they paid attention to Jung's politics. Uh, they would have realised that there is uh, nuance is always a possibility and something you sh- yeah. something you should almost strive for. Really, is, you is, would hope so, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, how do you th- how do you think Junger should be approached? Because it's quite a, it's quite a difficult figure to. There's no clear path there. Of course, you could start with Storm of Steel, but that's if you would you know you can't really sum up Junger off Storm of Steel, which is what he's known for by by the majority which is just a uh, that's a war novel and there's a there's, where, where, where how do you how would you advise someone to approach you now? well i would advise them to read elliot neiman's a dubious path <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah look i mean if you if you really want to delve into it it's a you know it's 18 volumes in the Kled edition uh if you can read german as more and more is being published I would say approach Junger with an open mind and say, what is, you know, what is this guy, what has this guy got to offer? I think some people really find his, um, his language uh, difficult and, and they just don't want to delve into it. He's not an easy writer. And, and, but if you like it, um, keep an open mind and, you know, t- understand sort of all the complexities of his biography. You know, he lived to be 102 years old. So, that you know, like all of us, we have contradictions and we have phases and, and understand all that and be open to it. And and you you might get something out of it. Um, there's a lot there's a lot there, I think. And that's the way I would do it. Open mind, basically. Mm-hmm. So this has been kind of a, a brief overview of it in his life and work. So is there anything you... you uh you'd like to comment on or comment on more in depth that we haven't here? Well, we covered a fair amount, you know, the, uh, the way to approach all, all, all of this is to think of, I think, of the uh, German intellectual thought as there, there are clusters of thinkers, right? So there's the Frankfurt School, Adorno, Horkheimer, Benjamin, Fromm, 
there's there that that's a cluster of thinkers. I think you put Junger into the other side, the cluster of thinkers, but enlarge it a little bit and don't pigeonhole him as a fascist, as we were just talking about, and see him in that line that goes from say somebody like Rochefoucauld, you know, 18th century moralist, through um, Goethe and through the German Romanticism into Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and Diltai and that whole anti-positivist, you know, the revolt against positivism at the end of the 19th century and and put him in that, you know, box if you're going to put him in a box. And, and that's a pretty big box. And, and see that there's this richness um, politically on, on, on both sides or on all sides. You know, there's, there, there, are the, there are the liberals, there are the, the sort of uh, the, 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 the socialist side, which however wants to expand. That's what the Frankfurt School was. It wanted to expand into psychoanalysis and, and not be narrowly dogmatic and all that. And then see the right wing that way, too, that, that there's a whole there's a lot of complexity there. Um, that's that's worth taking seriously and 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 don't and you don't have to decide for you don't have to you don't have to translate your politics whether you're left wing you're a moderate you're you're conservative whatever you don't have to need to translate you don't need to find the people who are going to support what you the way you see the world just accept it on on its own terms so that's that's so I'm an intellectual historian I love ideas and and I think that that's where you have to approach ideas on their own. And, and, and separate yourself and your particular moment in time out of it, if that makes sense. Okay, that's great. That sounds a good place to finish up, I think. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm looking forward to, uh, to hearing it in, as a podcast. Okay, thanks very much. <laughs>